I have another gift for you today. You know what it is? It's not me preaching. <laughs> Whoa. All right. All right. All right. I love you guys, too. Uh, seriously, this is kind of like Mentor Month. Uh, last week, uh, one of my key mentors, Doc, Dr. Um, Steve King, preached for us. And today, I have another one of uh, this guy who just shaped my life. Uh, his name is Dr. Scott Redd. He is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary and associate professor of Old Testament right here in Washington, D.C. Let me just briefly tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he loves the Lord, and he just loves to preach, and he loves to see the word go forward. But he hasn't always been in ministry. This is one of the reasons I love him. Um, he's also a second career guy like me. He started his professional career right here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I believe he was a media consultant uh, for both national and international firms. God called him into ministry. He went to seminary, the RTS, a Reformed Theological Seminary in Florida, and he ends up here being the president of this seminary. Let me tell you about his passion. He loves old biblical languages and the literary structure of the Bible. And you have to put some time and work in uh, to really understand that. And he's done it. So we get to, uh, especially those of us who have grown up there in that seminary, which all of your pastors are, it's my alma mater, but we also use it for our residency to develop our pastors, all of them. So we have a great partnership with this seminary, but he has a passion for biblical languages. And I have this feeling that you could sit down with Moses and just speak like in his language, like in heaven. So if you can't do that, I'm gonna be disappointed in you. Um, he loves that. He's also a practitioner. He's a pastor, um, and he's a partner. I know that every time I find myself at RTS, I end up in his office, sometimes because I'm in trouble, but usually because I just want to hang out. I plop down in the chair, and we talk about life. Um, he's married to the love of his life, Jennifer, five beautiful girls. I love this guy. So we are feeding on the Word of God, and God is going to give us his Word today. So would you please welcome Dr. Scott Redd. Thank you, Jason, and thank you, Portico Church, for having me this morning. This is a special honor for us. Um, we do have a dear relationship with your church uh, and RTS. Washington, um, you all support us. We thank you for that. Um, most importantly, support us by sending so many uh, of your pastors to come take classes with us. I felt as I was coming up, this is kind of like a parent-teacher conference in a way. Um, they're doing great. They're, talking, they're participating in class. Um, uh, but no, um, honestly, though, they're not just great additions to the conversation in the classroom. They, they've become dear friends, and I, I appreciate. I, I love those times that Jason comes in my door of my office, and we get to hang out or go get lunch. It's just a blessing for me, and I um, deeply cherish those friendships. And so thank you for loaning them to us throughout the week to come take classes at RTS. This is also a sweet moment that we get to gather together as the people of God, that we get to come together even though we're socially distanced, we're not spiritually distant, are we? We share this DNA of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, this shared lordship that we're seeking him, and this shared in theology around seminary, I could throw around words like eschatology, but this shared goal. Right? That we are going to end in the new heavens and new earth together, singing with one another 
in the, in the glory of Christ. As the hymn singer says, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, think about it. We're going to be there together. And so even though we're socially distanced and we're wearing masks and we can't do all of this extra verbal communication that we usually like to do and rely upon, there's still this deep spiritual connection. And it is a sweet thing, isn't it? to be able to come and worship together in the fellowship of the church. So let's turn our eyes to this peculiar passage that is given to us by a peculiar prophet. This is Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 14. I am an Old Testament professor, and so I, I like to delve into some of these peculiar passages. This is one you've probably heard before. In some ways, this is probably the most fitting for the month of Halloween to read Ezekiel 37, where we have these bones laying in the valley, being drawn together and standing up to live. But it's about a lot more than that, isn't it? So let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel the prophet speaking. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. Behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was the sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath. And breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves. O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we consider these words, that you would give us wisdom and discernment, help us to understand them. I pray that your spirit would illuminate them to us, not only that we would better be able to decipher their meaning, but that we would rightly evaluate them, rightly understand them as your word. 
Dear Lord, as we come to the text, let us come as those who come before their rabbi, before their teacher. And we pray that you would teach us. Draw us to you, we pray, in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is a peculiar passage. It's one, if you've been raised in the church, you've probably heard before. Um, You may have heard of a lot of different interpretations of it because it is peculiar and those strange passages in the Bible tend to attract uh, preaching and teaching about them and often speculation as well. So what I want to do is I actually want to start with the end. I, I I want to start with a spoiler, okay, as to where we're going with this. And the spoiler is this. When the prophet is talking about the nation of Israel, okay, when the prophet is talking about the nation of Israel, he's talking about more than he knows. And this is true of the ancient Near Eastern prophets, right? The Old Testament prophets. They spoke about things like Israel going into exile and then coming out of exile. And they used strong metaphorical language, symbolic language. They had visions that would, almost like trailers of movies, you know, would kind of put together a bunch of different ideas about what the movie was going to be about. And then they'd say, this is what the time to come will be like. You know, you've probably heard, you know, Isaiah said, there's going to be streams flowing in the desert. In other words, where there's dryness, there's going to be life, okay? Ezekiel said, there's going to be this brand new temple, and it's going to be cosmic, and it'll fill the earth with living water. And then here in this passage, it's interesting, in this vision, he says, it's going to be as if this valley, it's kind of like a valley after a battle, and the bones are laying across it. It's going to be as if they are totally reconstituted and turned into an army. But he speaks about more than he knows. Because Ezekiel is not just speaking about Israel, his countrymen standing around him in exile. But he is telling the story of Christ. You see, Israel's story is not just Israel's story. It's Christ's story. And that's kind of the spoiler in all of this. For those of us acquainted with the New Testament, acquainted with the ministry, the life, and the death, and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, we know who the Israelite will be who will rise from the dead, right? to speak plainly. Who's the Israelite who will run the race? And like, like Moses said, love the Lord as God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his strength, and who will therefore gain the inheritance. Who's the Israelite who, when he comes out of Egypt... Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, will say, Out of Egypt I called my son, and here he is. And yet what Matthew is citing is an Old Testament text talking about Israel coming out of Egypt. Matthew will say what was true of Israel in the Old Testament is now true of the faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus means when he says, I am the true vine. Have you ever thought about that? I am the true vine. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're just all kind of connected to Jesus, like leaves and grapes are connected to a vine? Jesus actually unpacks it even more. He says, no, I am the true vine. As in the Old Testament, the people of God were always called the vine. They're always the vineyard. And yet Jesus comes and says, I'm the true vine. If you want to be in Israel, you must be in the faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. You see, Israel's story is not just about Israel. It's about Christ. But what's interesting to me is that as Jesus is doing his ministry, as he's developing his teaching, even as he dies on the cross and rises from the dead, his concern becomes more and more focused. His preaching subject matter becomes more and more focused on the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, as soon as Jesus rises from the dead, think about those stories from Luke. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. Or he's in the upper room 
What is he doing? He's opening up the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, okay? He's opening up the Old Testament, and he's showing how it points to him. You see, the resurrected Jesus is most interested in showing how the story of Israel is pointing to him. As apostles say, our hearts were burning within us as we heard him unpack these stories that we knew so well and yet didn't understand how they ended. This is more than just job security for an Old Testament professor like me to know that Jesus is most interested in the Old Testament when he rises from the dead. But it draws our attention to the fact that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is our hope. And yet when we say something like, Jesus is the answer, what do we mean? Jesus is the answer to the question that the Old Testament is asking. If Jesus is the answer, the Old Testament is the question. How will there be streams in the desert? How will the dry bones rise up and and worship the Lord? How, How will a temple fill the earth with living water? How will there be new creation? It's through Jesus. If we want to know the answer or how Jesus is the answer, we have to know what the question is. In many ways, you should think of the Old Testament as something like an exam. It's raising all of these questions about existence and human experience and what it means to love and serve God, and yet it doesn't quite answer them. It leaves all of these questions unanswered. As a matter of fact, if the Old Testament was a play, the intermission would come right at the end of the play, right? And the the New Testament would be the second part of the play. If, If you were to draw the curtain to a close right before the intermission, right as the Old Testament was drawing to an end, the last thing you would see would be Nehemiah. the city administrator, on his knees. And go read it. Go read the end of the book of Nehemiah. He says, Lord, don't forget about us. That's the end of the book. That's a big, open-ended question. And the New Testament could open on the angels singing in the heavens about God's favor towards men and goodwill on earth. Or or, or John the Baptist marching out to, to, to the Jordan to do a baptism of repentance because he's bringing exile to an end finally once and for all. But you see, the Old Testament is asking a question that we have to wait to the New Testament to find the answer to. Now, Ezekiel's already established what's going on here with this valley of dry bones. He's talking about Israel going into exile. And Israel's exile is described in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. Isaiah says it's going to be like a dark night. Okay? Those who have been in darkness are going to see a great light. That's the end of the exile that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 9. It says it's going to be like nightfall on the people of God because God's favor is taken from them. Ezekiel says it's going to be like a death. It's going to be like Israel has died and her corpse is laying in multitudes around this valley. But that one day, one day the Lord would reestablish his people. There would be a new people, a new army who would stand up exceedingly great. This, by the way, isn't true just of Ezekiel. This is throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 30 Moses talks about this coming exile, and he says, I'm going to one day draw the people back into the land. When they turn back to me, like Jeremiah says, when they seek me with all of their heart, they'll find me, and I'll bring them back to the land. But then what does he say? I'm going to give them greater blessings than they had ever in Moses or in Joshua or in the judges. They'll have a greater blessing than they had 
for their forefathers. Isaiah, again, talks about a highway in the desert where the Lord brings back his people into the land and there's a harbinger who runs before the king as the king's coming back in victory and he says, make straight in the desert the way of the Lord because he's coming back with his people in victory. So this idea of exile ending in this amazing, miraculous event of resurrection, restoration, victory in battle is not new to the Old, to the Old Testament. It's, it's common throughout. But what was the problem? What was the problem that led to this exile that would have to be solved? Well, the problem for Israel was the problem of syncretism. And syncretism is this idea where you don't put away the true God and worship a false God, but rather you leave the true God kind of in his place. You leave the ark up at the front of the temple, but you bring in other things as well to worship. So you might have the ark up there in the Holy of Holies, and yet as you're walking into the temple, you also have an idol to Asherah, the fertility goddess. Because after all, right, you, know, you need your crops to grow. You want to have children, so you need the fertility goddess to kind of hedge your bets. Right? Or maybe you'll have something to Baal because Baal brings the rain cloud. And so if you want to have that rain that you need in the arid um, climate of Israel, then you need to have Baal kind of watching over you. Now, I'm not, you're not giving up worship of Yahweh. After all, Adonai is the one who brought you out of Egypt. But let's be honest, we need fertility. We need the rain cloud. Right? You see, that was the sin of Israel that led to its exile. And to be honest, it's not very far from what we do as well. We worship Jesus. We come in on Sunday morning. We glorify him. And yet throughout the week, we find our minds constantly drawn to our bank accounts or our employment or our families. We say, yes, Jesus, you're, you're good enough to save me. And I know I've got the big things covered through you, Jesus. But let's be honest, my safety and my security, my comfort in life is found in other things. I think just like ancient Israel, we have to be careful about syncretism, about adding to Jesus, to our worship. And yet Ezekiel is clear, the Lord, in spite of Israel's syncretism, is not going to leave them as a valley of dry bones. Notice how the passage begins. It says, I was taken in the Spirit. Now, just as soon as you see that with an Old Testament passage, you need to know, uh, a person being taken in the Spirit means they're about to see a vision. They're about to have this symbolic experience of a theological reality. As soon as you see someone saying, I was taken in the Spirit, or the Lord took me up in the Spirit, you should say, okay, the things that I'm going to see now are going to be emblematic of the events that will take place sometime in the future. So where is he taken? He's taken in the Spirit to this valley. And it's not, we're not exactly clear where it could be. It's, uh, there are different valleys that are used sort of symbolically in the Old Testament to talk about the Lord's work. There's the Valley of, of Jezreel, which is where many of the battles took place, which, by the way, just a little Bible trivia, is at the foot of Mount uh, Megiddo, or in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, which heard through Aramaic and Greek sounds like Armageddon. Okay, so that's where you get that language. It's that valley where the battles took place because it's basically one of the only good valleys for fighting battles in ancient Israel. So that's where it takes place. So a lot of visions are about the valleys at the foot of Har Megiddo, the valleys uh, in Jezreel. But whatever the valley is, it's not so much important. What, what, what matters is that there's been this battle. 
and the army of Israel has been vanquished completely. Notice that the bones are dry. He, he make, draws attention to that. They're very dry. These aren't recently dead bodies. These are long dead bodies. These are bones that when they come together, they rattle. There's no sinew and flesh in them to kind of soften the noise. So he sees these very dry bones. They're not wet. There's no viscera left. They're completely dead. They're a symbol of what could be and seems to be utter and complete annihilation. But what is the prophet told to do? He's told to preach. So he preaches God's word. And what happens? God's word, like we hear in the prophets, does stuff. When the word is preached, things happen. It's performative. It doesn't return void. What happens? The bones start kind of shaking and rattling together. And sinew and muscles, this vivid picture of a body being reconstituted. Whenever I read this, I think about that old Encyclopedia Britannica that my parents had, where if you looked up the anatomy section, you'd have that kind of clear paper. Anybody see this before? Okay, yeah, you're showing your age if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, and you can lift it up and be like, nervous system, right? Muscular system, okay? Epidermis. So you can see all of that stuff. So I kind of think of that happening, you know, the, the, the muscles and the sinews coming back together. So notice, the Word of God does stuff. It doesn't return void. It makes things. But notice what it doesn't do. It doesn't actually give life. Now, this isn't to the detriment of the word. That's not the point of the passage. The point is, that is what is required for life to take place. The word must be preached, but what else must also be brought into the equation? Now, there's a play here that we don't quite see as well in English. But in Hebrew, the word ruach, okay, is a word that means wind. It means spirit, okay, and it can mean breath. So the Lord notes, just like with Adam, there's no, there's no life in these bodies, right? They need the breath of life. Well, how do they get it? The prophet goes out, and he's called to preach. Preach to the wind. Preach to the ruach. Let the ruach come in and fill them with life, the wind, the spirit, the breath. What's required in the preaching of the word to bring about new life? It's the spirit. Did you know that? Did you know as a Christian there's one point in your life, you may remember it, you may not, but someone was preaching the word to you, and they may not have been obviously preaching like I am today. They may have just been conveying it in a conversation. And that the Spirit attends to the preaching of the word and gave you life? Do you know that's what it means to be born again? That's what it means to be regenerate? To say with Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me? This isn't something I, I didn't build Christ within me. The Spirit filled me. Theologians call this term regeneration, or the filling of the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ. It was true in the Old Testament, and it's true for us today. The Word accomplishes much, but many people can hear the Word. For it to give life, the Spirit must attend to it. Now, of course, the Lord doesn't leave Ezekiel there and say, all right, well, there you have it. This, this, here's this picture. But he actually explains what the picture means, right? He says, this is Israel in exile. She will be resurrected. This is Israel in exile. She will be resurrected. And then Ezekiel uses his famous 
phrase, or it's the Lord's phrase that he uses regularly in his book. And then you will know, and what he means by that is, and then you will acknowledge that I am the Lord. Notice it's not through style. It's not through salesmanship. It's not through manipulative technique that new life is given. But it's through the Spirit. It's through the Spirit filling the dead heart and making it alive. Taking something that was once stone and make it beating heart flesh. I think we experience this in a variety of different ways. Some of you in your life have had a miraculous experience of this regeneration. You knew as soon as it happened. And for others, like myself, for instance, it happened over years. I was raised in a Christian family. I'm not quite sure when it exactly happened, but there was a point where I realized, oh, this changes everything. (laughs) This belief in Jesus changes everything. This gospel changes everything. You see, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives life, your worst moment, your isolation, your greatest fear is but a mere preamble to the joy unspeakable, that is, the eternal life in the presence of God, life abundant. You see, because we know Jesus, the faithful Israelite who rose from the grave, the first of the resurrection that Ezekiel speaks about here in Ezekiel 37, because we have his spirit, what Peter calls the spirit of Jesus himself, dwelling within us, the spirit of sonship, so that we can go to the Father and say, Abba, Father. Notice we don't pray, dear Father of Jesus who art in heaven. What do we pray? Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Because that spirit has given us life, we now can taste what that great resurrection life that Jesus already experiences will be like for us. Now, for those of you who are are new to this, for those of you who maybe wondering about these things, these strange teachings from this ancient Semitic author named Ezekiel. I would ask this. Have you sensed that there is something wrong in this world? I think nowadays it's not hard to sense that, is it? Have you sensed that maybe humans long for something beyond what we see around us? That That there's a beauty, there's a grandeur, there's something about love that points to a deeper meaning than just chemical reactions going off inside of our brains, right? There's something about your love of neighbor. There's something about the dignity of humanity that speaks to something greater than just solidarity with the species, right? See, the prophet Ezekiel is saying there is a greater meaning. There is a deeper truth. There is a great longing that we all have. And that is the longing to be made like this army, resurrected, standing up exceedingly great. If you desire life, if you desire abundant, substantial life, vibrant life that's reconciled to the God of life, the creator of the universe, let me invite you to hear the word as it is given to us today. And for all of us, I want to make another request That might seem kind of strange. It might seem a bit odd. But I want you to ask the Spirit of God to enliven your heart. I want you to ask, Spirit of God, I know I ought to want this. Give me the desire to want this. Fill me, Lord, with the yearning for 
life. Let my heart, my will, my desires be conformed to your heart and your will and your desires. A friend once told me that John 3.16, you know the one, John 3.16 is meant for football games. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. But let me tell you, it's not just for football games. I pray that everyone in this room could stand up like those bones in the valley and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ in the spirit of Jesus Christ. May those who were bones become a mighty host, an exceedingly great army. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this teaching. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, help us to see how Christ is indeed the yes to all of the promises of the Old Testament, how they do speak to him. Dear Lord, I give thanks that we can read these Old Testament anticipations in light of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. But dear Lord, they also remind us that there's so much left for us to know. We long to see what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And we recognize that there may be some day that we look back on sermons like this one and say, oh, how quaint. They knew so little about what was to come. They spoke about things that were greater than they knew. So, Lord, I pray that we would receive this in worship, be comforted by it, and seek you through it. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to continue in worship with our offering. Uh, we do this differently now, and so I guess I would encourage you in this way. Uh, for those of you in person, uh, there's a, an offering box on the way out, uh, so you can place a gift there if you so desire. And then for uh, those online and everyone,